0: book of Romans, in chapter 4, as we continue moving verse by verse through this great epistle that has been so important to so many Christians for so long. We have uh, just finished Romans chapter 3, and this morning we move into the first verses of Romans 4, and I want to begin reading verse 1, we're going to go through verse 5. Romans 4, verses 1 through 5. Many of the themes in these verses you will see are are very familiar. They're themes that we have covered in depth uh, in chapter 3. Let's hear them again. Romans 4, beginning in verse 1. "'What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about.' We are talking about the most important message of all time the gospel. We're talking about the good news concerning how unrighteous people can be made right with God and have Him as their Father forever. Everything depends on whether or not we get this message right. Paul has been contending throughout this whole epistle that the gospel that he is traveling from city to city proclaiming, this gospel for which he has been beaten, this gospel for which he has been imprisoned, it is not some new gospel of his own imagining. Paul has not come up with his own ideas about how people can be saved and then devoted his life to spreading his own opinions. Note, Paul wants his readers to understand that the gospel which he proclaims is in fact a very old gospel. It is the same gospel taught by God throughout all human history. Every generation has its philosophers and teachers whose ideas catch on as the latest fad. And there may have been some in the Roman church who were a little bit nervous that maybe this Christianity thing was going to prove to be just that. Could it be that the gospel that Paul has just outlined in Romans 3 verses 21 through 26, could it be that 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 gospel was not really from God, but is just another man's attempt to make sense of things? There are many in our day who believe that the gospel, our gospel, our Protestant Christianity gospel is just the foolish ramblings of a first century Jew and that the sooner we put it behind us, the better off we'll be. But Paul has been going to great lengths to show that this gospel is not his gospel at all. It is God's gospel. And it isn't new either. Look back with me at the opening verses of Romans 1. The opening verses of Romans 1. Here's how Paul began the letter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. So right here at the very beginning of the letter, Paul wants us to understand some facts about this gospel that he is preaching. He wants us to understand that it is not his gospel, it is God's gospel, and it is the gospel that was promised by God's prophets in the Old Testament. It's not new. It's very old. Look at Romans 3, verse 21. Let me just remind you of what we saw there. Romans 3, verse 21 but now the righteousness of god has been manifested apart from the law although the law and prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of god through faith in jesus christ for all who believe see that that phrase the law and the prophets was used in paul's day to refer to the old testament Paul is telling us that our Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi bears witness to this gospel that he's preaching. So at the very beginning of this letter, he tells us that his gospel is the same gospel taught in the Old Testament. Then when he begins to outline the gospel in verses 21 through 26 of chapter 3, at the very beginning of that, he says it again. Oh, by the way, my gospel is the same gospel taught in the Old Testament. Then, as if two times were not enough, he pretty much hints at the same thing in the last verse of chapter 3. We saw it last week, the last verse of chapter 3. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. In other words, as we saw last week, the reason Paul can say that we uphold the law is that the Old Testament law taught the same gospel that we believe. If the Old Testament taught a different gospel, Paul would have to say that we are now nullifying the law. We are now breaking the law. We are now uh, perhaps abolishing the law. But that's not what he says here. He says that when we believe on Jesus Christ and hold to his gospel, we uphold the law. Meaning that his gospel is consistent with the teaching of the Old Testament. It seems like Paul has a real burden for us to get this point. The gospel is not some new thing that was suddenly revealed in the first century that came out of nowhere. Rather, it had been revealed by God throughout human history. Now as we come to chapter 4, Paul makes this the clearest of all. He goes to the Old Testament, and he goes not only to the Old Testament, but to the Old Testament law, to the book of Genesis. Abraham is exhibit A. In Paul's argument that his gospel of justification by faith alone, being made right with God by faith in Jesus and faith alone, that that gospel is not a new gospel. It is the gospel at all times, both ancient and modern. It is the very gospel that saved Abraham. So let's look at Paul and let's look at these verses and see how Paul makes the case, okay? Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 4. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Don't misunderstand that last part. It would be easy to hear the question this way. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If you hear it that way, Paul is asking about what Abraham accomplished in and of himself. Right? He's saying, well, what did Abraham gain in his own flesh? What did Abraham gain in the things that he did in and of his own strength and his own ability? But that's not the question. Look at where the comma is in your English translation. Hopefully they've placed it rightly. Here's the question as you should hear it. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? In other words, according to the flesh describes how Abraham is a forefather, not how he gained something. And so Paul is still speaking here mainly to Christian Jews in the church of Rome. Those for whom Abraham was their forefather, not just spiritually by faith, Abraham was their forefather by science, by biology, by blood, according to the flesh. And the question that Paul is asking his fellow Jewish Christians is this one. What shall we say was gained by Abraham? Or better yet, better translation, what shall we say was found by Abraham? I I like the ESV. This is one place where the ESV kind of lets me down a little bit. Um, The better translation, the one found in the New American Standard, found in the Holman Christian Standard is the word found, and that is the literal Greek meaning. Here's what Paul was asking. What is the way of salvation? What is the way of justification? What is the way of being made right with God that was found by Abraham? That's the question. Make sure you get that because you won't understand the answer if you don't understand the question. Paul is asking his fellow Jewish Christians... Those of whom Abraham is their forefather, according to the flesh, biologically, he's asking them, what shall we say was found by Abraham concerning salvation, concerning what we've been talking about, justification? And then he gives answers in verses 2 and 3. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So in verse 2, Paul gives the wrong answer. And then in verse 3, he gives the right answer. In verse 2, the answer is, Abraham was justified by works. And Paul makes clear, this cannot be. For then Abraham would have bragging rights before God. If salvation is by works, then there is room for human pride. And this cannot be. We've talked at length about that. God's way of salvation cannot leave room for human pride. And therefore, verse 2 cannot be. It cannot be justification by works. So then he says in verse 3, the right answer is the one found in Genesis 15 verse 6. Abraham believed, had faith, and this was counted to his account in the sight of God as righteousness. Abraham was made right with God by faith apart from works. Now, aren't those first words of verse 3 a wonderful guide to us concerning all of our deep questions? For what does the Scripture say? Friends, hear this. when we are trying to get to the bottom of something and we want to understand something about God, we want to understand something about ourselves, we want to understand something about this world, we want to understand something of any real significance, this must be the question we always ask. What does the Scriptures say? For there is no surer place to look, is there? We do not look first to public opinion. We do not look first to the ideas of our friends or the answers given by the latest television personalities or self-help authors. We do not look to the answers given by our culture or by our society. For every important question in life, this is the question we should ask. What do the Scriptures say? And notice, Paul doesn't just ask about the Scriptures in general. He asks about one Scripture in particular. You see that? What does the Scripture singular say? He has one verse in mind. He only has one verse. Genesis 15, 6. What does the Scripture say? In other words, Paul is convinced that if he can prove his point from one verse, it is truly proven. The Bible does not have to say something more than one time for it to be true. Do you know that? You understand that? Now, does the Bible teach the same truth as Genesis 15, 6 in other places? Oh yes, everywhere, <laughs> right? But that's not the point. The point is, even if the Bible only said it one time, even if Paul's only proof text was Genesis 15, 6, it would still be true. Here is evidence of the authority of the Bible. If it says it once, it's enough. And we can rest on it. And so, based on Genesis fifteen six, Paul shows us that salvation is by faith alone. Look at verses 4 and 5. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul is making a contrast, isn't he? Verse 4 is about the one who works for salvation, He obtains salvation this way, and by earning it, by by working for it, it isn't a gift. It's a wage, which He has earned. If this is the way of salvation, by human works, then those who work receive salvation as their due. God owes them salvation. And this can never be. Verse 5 is the one is about one who does not try and earn his salvation. Verse 5 is about the one who simply believes God. He simply believes the very God who justifies the ungodly. This person's faith is all that is required, and this faith is accepted by God and counted as righteousness. It isn't that the faith itself is some sort of holy work which is accepted by God as righteousness. No, rather God accepts faith in the place of perfect righteousness because He responds to that faith by giving Christ perfect righteousness to our accounts. Who must we believe in to be saved? We must believe in the God who justifies the ungodly. We must believe in the God who takes ungodly people and counts them as right in His sight. The God who forgives the ungodly because He has already punished their sins at the cross. The God who counts ungodly people righteous because Christ has accomplished righteousness for them. Dear friends, I would simply ask you, do you believe in such a God? Is this the God in whom you trust? Are you willing to forsake all of your supposed good works, all of your human effort, all of your vain attempts to measure up? Are you willing to put all of that aside and simply trust? Simply believe? Will you take God at His word and let that be enough? Or do you insist there must be something more to it? True Christians are those who come to God like children. They hear His promise that they will be loved and forgiven if they rest in Him. And what do they do? They just rest in Him. They just trust Him. They believe what He says. But for many, this is just too much. We can't believe in a God like this. How can God just forgive that man's sins? How can God just just forgive that woman and make that woman right in his sight? How can God just bless her? Doesn't God know what these people did? Surely they must make amends. Surely they must do some sort of penance. Surely there must be some kind of work required. Is that you? Is that the God you believe in? Because that is not the God of Abraham. That is not the God... Paul, that is not the God of the gospel. Perhaps you believe that your own sins are too great. Perhaps you think that God could never simply forgive your sins and count you righteous in His sight. Maybe you feel you must make up for your past deeds. You must make your good deeds outweigh your wicked ones. Dear friends, as long as you think that way, you are far from the kingdom of heaven. You have no hope. Any gospel that includes your works is a gospel that depends upon you and it will fail. Your only hope is a gospel in which everything depends upon God. If it depends upon God and God alone, it will never fail. God does all the work and then He simply calls you to trust what He has done. He calls you to rest in everything that He's accomplished through Jesus Christ. Dear friends, do you believe in a God that justifies the ungodly? I hope you do. Last week I said a few words about a view of the Bible called dispensationalism. I urged you to reject the dispensational view of the Old Testament law, which basically argues that the first five books of the Bible, the law of the Old Testament, that that was really for national Israel and has very little to do with us. I urged you to reject that view. This morning, I need to urge you to reject another aspect of this view called dispensationalism, Classic dispensationalism was developed by a man named John Nelson Darby in the 1800s. was made famous in the Schofield Reference Bible that became popular in the early 1900s. still widely used by many today. In that Schofield Reference Bible, C.I. Schofield taught in his notes that we can separate history into different dispensations And he taught that the way of salvation was different in different dispensations. Here is a view that has become prominent in our culture among Christians. Namely, that there have been different ways of salvation, different Gospels at different points in history following the views of Schofield, there are many who believe that before Jesus came, people were not saved by grace or faith, they were saved by law-keeping. And only since Jesus came have people been able to be saved by grace through faith. For example, on John 17, Schofield makes this note, he says, As a dispensation, grace begins with the death and resurrection of Jesus The point of testing is no longer legal obedience as the condition of salvation, but the acceptance or rejection of Christ with good works as a fruit of salvation. This is the classical dispensational view. Before Jesus came, legal obedience was required for salvation. After Christ, faith is the requirement. Friends, what is Paul teaching us right here in Romans 4, verses 1 through 5? What is Paul teaching us here? How was Abraham saved? Was he saved by legal obedience? Or was he saved by faith? You see, understanding that there has always been one gospel... One way of salvation can give us confidence and boldness in declaring that gospel to others today. Our gospel is no new fad. Our gospel will not change tomorrow, nor has it ever changed. Salvation, being made right with God, has always been by grace through faith. And that is the message that we are to herald to men and to women and to boys and to girls everywhere. and We can have confidence in it. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it well more than a half century ago. Listen to to the doctor. He said this. The theme of this chapter, talking about Romans 4, the theme of this chapter is that there is only one covenant of grace and that men in all dispensations are saved in exactly the same way. It is the same covenant of grace under the Old Testament as it is under the New Testament. There is a difference in administration, but it is the same covenant of grace. There is only one way of salvation, always, whether in the past or the present or the future. I think that's what Paul's trying to teach us in these first verses of Romans 4. This is no new gospel. Now, what I want to do with the little bit of time we have left is I want to make three points that I hope will help clarify this to you. How we should think about the gospel as it has been revealed throughout history. This is is good stuff, this is important stuff, so listen well. First point, the gospel has always been about Jesus Christ. The gospel has always been about Jesus Christ. You see, there are many in our day who say that people in different times of history were saved by faith, but it wasn't faith in Christ was faith in whatever God had told them the the light that they had some might say that the Old Testament saints like Abraham they knew nothing about Jesus they knew nothing about a Messiah they were saved because they simply believed the things that God had told them friends I want to suggest to you that the gospel that Abraham believed the gospel believed by all God's people throughout all of history has always had Christ at the center of it Remember Romans 1, 1 through 3, we read it a while ago, the opening verses of the book of Romans. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which was promised through his prophets, which was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Old Testament, Holy Scriptures, concerning his son. Right? The gospel taught in the Old Testament concerned God's son. The gospel in the Old Testament was this, a Messiah is coming. Do you remember how Jesus helped the two men along the road to Emmaus see that the entire Old Testament was about Him? Do you remember that story? Their eyes were opened to see that every part of the Old Testament from Genesis 1 to the end of Malachi was about Jesus. Do we think that those were the first two men to ever see that? Do we think that was the first time God ever gave anyone eyes to see that that's what was going on? Or is it not true that God had given eyes to people throughout the centuries of the Old Testament, causing them to see that the gospel was about a coming Messiah through whom they would be saved? Point number two. Not only has the gospel always been about Jesus Christ, but point number two. The gospel of salvation through Jesus has been revealed... Okay, let me say it again. Read it right. While the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ has been revealed and believed in every generation of human history, the light of the gospel has increased with each new covenant. In other words, the gospel has always been the same. Salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, whether it's looking forward to His coming or looking back at His coming, that's what the gospel has always been, centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. But the light of that gospel, the amount of information that God revealed about that gospel was different and growing with each successive covenant of the Bible. So in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve... Sin against God. And the curse falls upon all mankind. All humanity, which in Genesis 3 is just Adam and Eve, are sinners in the hands now of an angry God. And yet what does God do? Even as He proclaims His judgment, He proclaims that there is coming a descendant of Adam and Eve who will defeat the serpent and make things right. Now at that point in our Bibles, God doesn't say a whole lot more than that. It's clear, Genesis 3.15, a Messiah is going to come. It's clear that the Messiah is going to set things right. It's clear that Satan is going to be defeated. We might say that the fact that God sacrificed an animal to clothe Adam and Eve was was prefiguring the death of Jesus and how through that He would clothe us in His righteousness. But ultimately we have to say that Adam and Eve had the gospel, but they had it in small form. They probably had many questions. The gospel revealed to them centered on Jesus Christ, but they didn't know that Jesus would be His name. They had very few details. They were left to trust in God's promise concerning this coming Messiah. Yet as our study of Genesis 3 showed many months ago, this faith was enough to save Adam and Eve and to make them right with God. For them, the light of the gospel was like striking a match in a massive dark cave. It was very little light, but it was about Jesus Christ, and they believed, and they were saved. Come to the story of Noah, and suddenly God reveals a little bit more gospel light. Think about the rainbow, right? A weapon of war, a bow, and it's set in the sky, and it's pointing straight up to heaven. The bow is not pointing down to sinful men. The bow is pointing up to God Himself. God is preaching here that He Himself will bear His own judgment in order to save the world. We have Noah sacrificing, prefiguring the death of Jesus. But then we come to Abraham and suddenly our match in this dark cave turns into something more like a flashlight. <laughs> the light grows substantially. It, it begins, God begins to reveal more than He's ever revealed before. He he reveals that this descendant of the woman taught about in Genesis 3.15, he's going to be a descendant of Abraham. And through him, some great things that were not known yet are going to be accomplished. There's going to be a great kingdom that's going to be established. An eternal kingdom. Where God will be their God and they will be God's people. And He will be with them and will bless them forever. They will dwell on an eternal land flowing with milk and honey. Good things forever. The New Testament tells us that Abraham understood these promises and understood that they were not just about the physical nation of Israel and the physical land of Canaan. No, the Bible tells us that Abraham was looking for a better country. He understood that through this promised descendant of his, a great kingdom was going to be established. He had more light than the others before him. And though it still wasn't a great deal... It was about Jesus and it was enough. He believed on it and He was saved. We get to the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, given to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. Suddenly our flashlight in the dark cave turns into more of a bonfire. So much more light suddenly revealed about the coming Messiah. So much more to be seen and understood. God establishes a priesthood that teaches about the coming Messiah and how He will be the great high priest. God establishes a sacrificial system that preaches Christ each and every day to all the Jews. God raises up prophets who speak explicitly about the suffering of the future Messiah, about how He will then, after suffering, be exalted and given all authority and power. Each and every aspect of the Mosaic Covenant gave more and more information about the coming Messiah and how through the Messiah God would save His people. Yes, in the Old Testament, the gospel was being preached in shadows. It was only seen by those whom God gave eyes to see and believe, but this was far more gospel light than the world had ever had before. And those who had eyes to see believed and were saved. And then comes Jesus in the new covenant. This is us. We live in new covenant days. What is different about our day, folks? Do we have a different gospel? Oh, no. It's the same gospel. We just have so much more gospel light. It's as if the roof of the cave has been ripped off and the light of the sun now illumines every corner of it. God has now revealed it all. Jesus is the Messiah's name. He was born in Bethlehem to a virgin girl. He was hunted and persecuted in his lifetime. He lived a sinless life. He accomplished righteousness for his people. He taught God's truth. He called people to repentance and faith. He took on himself the guilt of all his people, bore the wrath they deserved on the cross. He was risen from the dead. He now reigns in heaven He has poured out His Holy Spirit on God's people in a measure never dreamed of before and He is saving people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He is building a kingdom of people and when He is finished, He is coming back to bring His people into a new heavens and a new earth. You see, dear church, it isn't a different gospel in different parts of the Bible. It's the same gospel. But its glory was being revealed gradually more and more over time in different covenants. And it is all culminated in the new covenant in which we have the gospel in all of its glorious details. Church, do you see how blessed we are? Point one, the gospel is all about Jesus. Point two, the gospel light has increased. Let's close with this one. Point three is that God has revealed His gospel to growing communities throughout history. God has revealed His gospel to growing communities throughout people. That is, the number of people who received the light has gotten larger and larger and larger and larger throughout biblical history. Church, remember, none of us deserves to hear the gospel. None of us deserves this message of salvation that leads to eternal joy. We deserve hell. We deserve to live and die in our sin and to never hear the way of salvation. And throughout the centuries, billions of people have experienced just that. They have lived and died and never heard the gospel and never believed and never been saved. God has not owed them an opportunity to be saved and they haven't had one. They've lived in their sin. They've lived in their depravity. They've lived as enemies of God and at death they have entered into the wrath of God. And yet when we look at the story of the Bible, we see that God has been continually increasing the number of people He has been revealing the gospel to. It began with one couple, Adam and Eve, right? It appears that they passed the gospel down. It was particularly faithfully passed down, it seems, through the godly line of Seth laid down in Genesis 5. The bulk of humanity lost the gospel. The bulk of humanity forgot about Genesis 3.15 and the promise of a serpent slayer to come. But through the godly line of Seth, it seems to have continued. This happens again with Abraham. The gospel comes to him and then it goes to his family and then his family grows and becomes the nation of Israel. Suddenly the gospel at Mount Sinai is being given to people who are not just a small number, but an entire nation. That's not enough. From the days of Abraham onward, there were promises that the gospel would be given to more than just one nation. The Psalms talked about a day when the whole earth would be filled of the knowledge of the glory of God. The prophets spoke of the gospel leaving Jerusalem and teaching and reaching the whole planet. Jesus comes on the scene... Jesus fulfills the gospel predictions. Jesus rises from the dead. And then what does He say to His disciples? Take this gospel where? Everywhere! (laughs) Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Church, here are the days in which we live. Not only do we have the gospel in all of its glorious light, But now God is working through us, His church, to take the Gospel to every kind of people on the planet. This is why Paul is so passionate about all of this. If the Roman Christians don't understand that his Gospel is the one true Gospel of all times for all people, they won't share his missionary heart. He's writing this letter because he wants them to be partners with him. He wants them to send him to Spain. He wants to use their churches as a headquarters. This is why I want you to get this, Mount Hermon. We live in special days. The great mission of Christ's church is almost completed. Gospel light has reached almost every group of people in the world. There are only a few. Yes, there are a few thousand, but compared to how many there are, it's a very few people groups in the world that do not still know the gospel. Surely the return of Jesus cannot be so far off. Will we be found working, playing our part, rejoicing in our role? Or will we be found asleep? Will we be caught up in things that don't matter? Here's how I want you to leave this morning. See the great privileges you have and take advantage of them you can know and understand more about the Gospel and the way of salvation than any other people in any other period of history. God has revealed to you things into which the prophets of old longed to understand, things into which angels themselves long to look. You have received so much, and you have received it not just for your own sake, but so that you could give it to others. The amount of light that God has given you now through the New Testament, now that you have the Old and the New Testaments together, it is not only enough to satisfy your soul and to fill you with joy, but it is enough to move you into radical holy service. Could it be that there are some in here this morning who are hearing all of this and yet you continue to reject the great light God has given you? You continue to turn a blind eye to the things of God. You don't care about Christ. You don't care about the Gospel. Ready for lunch. Dear friends, do you not see that you will be held to a higher standard? To whom much is given, much will be required. You have been given so much more than past generations and God will hold you accountable for what you did with the knowledge that He has entrusted to you. Did you believe the gospel and did you run with the gospel? Did you fulfill your particular callings and vocations in this life for gospel purposes or did you reject the gospel and live for things that are trivial? The days in which we live, church, are days of higher privilege and higher culpability before God. What will you do with all that you have received? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Give yourself to His service. Learn from His wisdom. Follow Him. Amen? Okay, let's pray. I'd simply ask us all now to take a few moments think quietly about